You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. Join us now for Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith. Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and the wisdom of the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations presented today will truly touch your heart and show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I'm going to continue where we left off last week with Fulton Sheen talking about the Christian order. And uh, today he's going to tie in education. And of course, these uh, reflections were from a series that he gave in 1943 on the Catholic Hour, and so uh, I know many of you have been enjoying these classic recordings, and I'm grateful to be able to present them to you. So uh, again, this wisdom is, uh, even though he preached it in the year 1943, uh, it's very relevant in the year 2022, so uh, we will share that with you momentarily. And uh, during the second half of our broadcast, we will have Uh, Bishop Sheen give a reflection uh, entitled Old Pots, and it comes from his retreat series he gave a few years ago. So uh, again, I want you just to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, as he gives a reflection called The Christian Order and Education. Please enjoy. Today's program will consist of music by a unit of the Paulist Choristers and an address by Monsignor Fulton J. Sheen. Monsignor Fulton J. Sheen of the Catholic University of America will now deliver the eighth in his series of 17 addresses on the crises in Christendom. His discourse today is entitled The Christian Order and Education. I present Monsignor Sheen. Friends. There are three points we should like to make in today's broadcast. First, it is a sound American principle that democracy cannot function without religion and morality. Secondly, American democracy is not presently making provision for religion and morality. Hence, thirdly, the necessity of restoring religious education in order to preserve democracy. First, democracy cannot survive without religion and morality. This is implied in the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, which is at the same time a declaration of dependence. For it states that our rights have come to us from God and therefore are unalienable. If our rights come to us from God, 
has raised from the sun, does it not follow that only on condition that we preserve our dependence on God will we preserve our independence from tyranny? As George Washington, whose birthday we celebrate tomorrow, said, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. And further support comes from Calvin Coolidge, who in 1928 stated, unless our people are thoroughly instructed in the great truths of religion, they are not fitted to understand our institutions or to provide them with adequate support. President Roosevelt, sensing the same need of religion for democracy, said in 1940, practically, practical steps should be taken to make more available to children and youth through education the resources of religion as an important factor in the democratic way of life and in the development of personal and social integrity. Religion and morality, therefore, are essential to democracy. Now that brings us to our second point, namely, democracy at the present time is not making provision in education for religion and morality. About the only group to whom modern religion caters is the group that neither practices nor believes in any religion. As Walter Lippmann said, Modern education is based on a denial that it is necessary or useful or desirable for the schools and colleges to transmit from generation to generation the religious and classical culture of the Western world. Dr. Hutchins, the president of the University of Chicago, in June 1940 expressed exactly the same lament. In order to believe in democracy, he said, we must believe that there is a distinction between the true and false, the good and bad, and the right and wrong. Are we prepared to defend these principles? Of course we are not. For over 40 years and more, our intellectual leaders have been telling us that they are not true. Unquote. The White House Conference of 1940 stated that of the 30 million children in the United States between the ages of 5 and 17, 16 million received no religious education whatsoever. It was this growing irreligious element which worried and prompted President Roosevelt in 1940 to say, we are concerned about the children who are outside the reach of religious influences and are denied help in attaining faith in an ordered universe 
and in the fatherhood of God. Nicholas Murray Butler, president of Columbia University, commenting upon the fact that the pagan element alone in our population is given the benefit of tax money, said, even the formal prayer that opens each session of the United States Senate and each session of the House of Representatives and which accompanies each inauguration of the President of the United States would not be permitted in a tax-supported school. That from Dr. Butler. If this condition of ignoring religion and morality existed in less important matters, it would have been remedied long ago. If, for example, it had been discovered that the geography of Russia was left out of our schools. Oh, how quickly it would be inserted. Why is nothing done about that which our tradition says is the indispensable condition of democracy? And that brings us now to our third point the necessity of restoring religious education in order to preserve democracy. Democracy demands that education satisfy not only the atheist, but also the believer in God. For that reason, those interested in the preservation of democracy have suggested that some assistance be given those schools, Episcopalian, Methodist, Baptist, Catholic, Jewish, and others who are aiding democracy by teaching religion. As Dr. Hutchins put it, the states may, if they choose, assist pupils to attend the schools of their choice. Since we want all American children to get as good an education as they can, since we know that some children will not voluntarily attend public schools, and since we are not prepared to compel them to do so, it is in the public interest to give states permission to use federal grants to help them go to the schools they will attend and to make these schools as good as possible. What possible objection is there to this idea? To this democratic idea that equal opportunities for education be given to all along religious and cultural lines. Well, there's one objection which is rather common. It is this. Education should be neutral. And by neutral, the intelligentsia mean that religion should not be taught. Now, this is a fallacy. The fact is, there is no such thing as neutral education. That is to say, an education without morality and religion. Religion and morality are not related to education like raisins to a cake, but like a soul to a body. There can be a cake without raisins, but there cannot be a man without a soul. 
If education does not inculcate a moral outlook, it will inculcate a materialist or a communist or a fascist or a Nazi outlook. Neutrality is absolutely impossible in education. By the mere fact that religious and moral training is neglected, non-religious, non-moral and in consequence anti-religious and anti-moral ideology is developed. No indoctrination of religion really means indoctrination of doubt and unbelief. Religion is either included or excluded in education. Hence a school from which religion is excluded is bound to become irreligious. Now there is a second objection against extending democracy and education to those who believe in God and morality. And it is this. America was founded on the principle of the separation of the church and the state. This is absolutely true. And we have no desire to change this principle. But our country was not founded on the principle of the separation of religion and the state. Our founding fathers intended that no particular religion should be the national religion, but they never intended that the state should be devoid of religion. It never entered their minds that we would grow up to be a near-religious nation, nor did they ever think that education would one day be divorced from God and his commandments. This is evident from the fact that no signer of the Declaration of Independence was educated in a non-religious school. For a century, the United States did not have a president who was educated in a non-religious school. It is true that the First Amendment of the Constitution forbade the establishment of any religion as a national religion, but that was because there was an established religion in ten of the thirteen colonies, the Congregational religion in three, and the Episcopalian in seven. But the disestablishment of a particular church was not the disestablishment of religion. The fact is that religious schools, Methodist, Presbyterian, Jewish, Episcopalian, Catholic, are in the tradition of true, sound Americanism. It is the non-religious schools that are outside of that glorious tradition. But why do we insist so much on religious education? Because because we are entering into an era of history wherein the grave threat to man's freedom will be from the omnipotent state. And once a nation 
ceases to believe, it begins to obey. As William Penn said, man must be governed by God or he will be ruled by tyrants. We are coming into the days of omnipotence where we will live either under the omnipotence of God or squirm under the omnipotence of the state. And godless education has no power to restrain a godless state. For example, when Hitler came into power in 1933, the very first to capitulate were the professors. But the one force which did not surrender was religion, as the Catholic bishops and Pastor Niemiller bear witness. It was the professors who allowed the independent administration of the universities to be abolished. The universities offering no objection to state-elected rectors and deans who were forced upon them by the Nazis. It was indeed a bitter disappointment for all who considered the German universities the defenders of rights and justice. But when one considers that specialization had been carried to such an extreme and a unified philosophy of life so universally abandoned, it was no surprise that there was no one idea left around which the universities could rally. Given a crisis in any country in the world in which totalitarianism threatens the liberty of the citizens and the first to capitulate will be the non-religious educators. How could it be otherwise? For without a faith, how can they oppose a faith? will be only those schools that recognize the soul and its creator that will challenge the state which attempts to absorb the soul. Why, therefore, I ask you, impose excessive burdens on those schools which are the safeguard of American freedom and democracy. There's no reason in the world why any school in the United States which teaches religion and morality should be penalized for being patriotic. nor why it should bear all the expenses of giving to the nation the two supports without which, as George Washington told us, a nation cannot endure. It is not fair. It is not democratic to cater only to the non-religious in education. A child who goes to a religious school may walk on the streets maintained by public funds, but in many instances in the United States, he may not ride to school in a bus that is operated at public expense. The state will build a chapel for citizens when they get into a penitentiary. How about building a few schools to prevent them from getting into a penitentiary? We are preparing an army of at least seven and a half million men to defend Christian liberty and justice on the battlefields. How about telling them something about that Christian liberty before we give them a gun? 
A government of the people, for the people, and by the people should respect the will of those who believe in religion and morality, even though they be in the minority. For democracy is not the custodian of majority privileges. It is the preserver of minority rights. Would it not be a good idea for America to cease talking about the right to worship and to begin talking about the duty to worship? We may need God's help and need it very badly before this war is over. And it's not too soon to begin asking for it now. For 150 years, we have been celebrating our Bill of Rights. How about teaching the young our Bill of Duties? The first 10 amendments to the Constitution are our Bill of Rights. The 10 commandments of God are our Bill of Duties. And to this end, we beg the Jews and the Protestants and Catholics and the radio audience to spend an hour a day in prayer and meditation for victory and for peace, and that our democracy may be preserved by a return to God. And to anyone who desires a prayer book suitable for wartime, write to us and we will send it to you free. Given another generation of godless education, and we will be in danger of tyranny. Given religion and morality and education, and we will be the most potent government influence for peace in the world. Then will America be great. And we will love it, not because it is great, but it will be great because we love it in the name of God. And that makes anything great. Not very long ago, a Nazi soldier in occupied France took his French wife and expectant mother into a hospital. Seeing a crucifix on the wall, the Nazi ordered the nun to take it down. She refused. He ordered her again, saying, I want no child of mine ever to look upon the image of Christ. So the nun, under threat, took it down. And the father's wish was fulfilled to the letter. The child was born blind. And God grant that we may never deny to our American children the right to gaze upon the image of the Savior of the world. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, I hope you enjoyed that reflection given by Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen back in 1943. And yes, the World War was on, and Fulton Sheen was making reference to Hitler. And again, I have been enjoying uh, a book that was put together uh, and is published by Sophia Institute Press, and it's called War and Peace, an anthology. It is a collection of five uh, Fulton Sheen's books that he uh, wrote in the 1940s during the war years, 
And uh, they give uh, a beautiful, uh, I want to say, um, library of talks that help people to understand the war, uh, why there is war, and uh, of course, how to develop a peace plan that works. And so uh, Fulton Sheen, think about it, every week he took to the radio airwaves to console America, to uh, again put them at ease, to try to bring a spiritual uh, element to uh, this reality that uh, the world was uh, at war. And uh, again, um, I think we would all be uh, very nervous thinking, what is going to happen next? Will our loved ones come back home from the war? All of these anxieties that, of course, uh, were in the hearts of many. And yet Fulton Sheen, every week, uh, gave addresses that just helped to um, bring consolation, but also an understanding. And so uh, we were able to put all of those reflections together into one book, and it's called War and Peace, an anthology. And it's available through Sophia Institute Press. And uh, their website is simply sophiainstitute.com. And uh, again, you can order it through them. Or, of course, there's that uh, bookstore called Amazon where many people uh, do a good amount of shopping. And I still always like that idea of buying local. Uh, We all have our favorite little bookstore that we could have them order it in and support our local retailers. So, again, the book is called War and Peace, an anthology. Uh, Again, I had the privilege of editing and putting this together, and so I recommend it to you. And I think you will be glad you did. So... All right, Uh, and of course we will continue with a number of these reflections uh, that Fulton Sheen gave during the war uh, in the upcoming weeks. And so, uh, again, uh, we will now go to a retreat that Fulton Sheen gave uh, towards the end of his life, and it was a family retreat, and he gave a beautiful reflection entitled Old Pots, and uh, I won't give away the story to you. I will let you, um, again, Uh, Just enjoy the wit and the wisdom of this very wise and holy man, the Venerable Sheen, as he gives a talk simply titled, Old Pots. Please enjoy. You good people are at a distinct disadvantage in coming to hear me. First of all, I have no papers, and therefore you never know when I'm going to finish. You could say, oh, he has only three more inches to go. (laughs) One of the reasons I never use a paper is because I once heard a woman speaking of a sermon of a bishop. She said, glory be to God, after he had read his talk. If he can't remember it, how does he expect us to? You're going to hear a subject today that you've never heard before. I'm going to talk about pots, old pots. Have you ever called any person a pot? Sure you have. Do you know that God calls us pots too? That will be the sermon, Pots. And I will begin it with a text from St. Paul. 
It is from his letter to the Corinthians. I heard a reader the other day read the epistle to the Filipinos. <laughs> instead of the Philippians. And another who read the second letter to the theologians. We are no better than pots of earthenware to contain this great treasure. And this proves that such transcendent power does not come from us, but is God's alone. Notice that we have a treasure inside of us, which is grace. Christ's life is in our body. But the body's a pot, like a pot of earthenware. Never before has anyone put, put such a treasure in so trivial a deposit. God doesn't change the nature of our pots. When he makes us his children, for example, Moses was called to be the leader of Israel and Moses stuttered. Three times God said to Moses, or Moses said to God, I can't talk, I stutter. And God said to him, I'll let your brother Aaron talk for you then. But he would not remove the stuttering. That was the nature of his pot. Peter was impetuous, always impetuous. Thomas was lugubrious and sad, always looking for rain on the day of the picnic. God did not change his nature. Paul was a man of fire, rather intolerant. The treasure was put into that pot. And then, if we're ugly, God leaves us ugly. St. Vincent de Paul was a very ugly man, but he contained a great treasure. So let me take you through scripture and describe God's way of dealing with pots. First of all, where does the treasure come from? Well, the treasure comes from God. And here we go back to the marriage feast of Cana. Our blessed Lord attended this wedding, and there were six water pots, and there were large ones containing 20 or 30 gallons of water. Now this gives you some idea of how much wine our blessed Lord made, 120 or 180 gallons of wine. Now the water pots were used by the Jews for purification. They had a peculiar kind of washing. They had to wash their, their uh, hands in such a manner as to let the water drip down their fingers. Then they would rub the palms together. And some of these practices were so bound up legally that to break them was considered very serious. Now here we are just before our conversion. We're like these six water pots or before our baptism. 
And our blessed Lord changes the water into wine. He still keeps the same pot. The steward said they have no wine. Why didn't they have any wine? Why did it all give out? Can you imagine wine giving out in a wine country? And certainly, any father would prepare adequate wine for a wedding ceremony. Why did it give out? Because our blessed Lord brought along all of his disciples. They liked wine then. It was the first case of gate crashing in the history of Christianity. So our blessed Lord leaves the water pots as they are, but changes the water into wine. As the poet Crashaw put it so beautifully, the unconscious waters saw their God and blushed. One would like to write a line of poetry of that kind and die. When God changes our nature, it's very much like, for example, if this marble suddenly began to bloom. That would be something that does not belong to the nature of marble. It would be a supernatural act for marble. If the flowers on the altar of Our Lady suddenly began to walk around the room, that would be a supernatural act for a flower. And if a dog began to quote Shakespeare, that would be something that does not belong to his nature. And if we, who are just creatures of God, just pops, are suddenly endowed with a treasure so that we participate of God's nature as we participate of the nature of our parents, then that's a supernatural act for us. So when, therefore, does the pot get this treasure? It gets it at the moment that the soul receives grace. Now, how much grace and how much treasure do we receive? That depends upon our emptiness. If a box is filled with salt, it can't be filled with pepper. If I am filled with a love of self, I cannot be filled with Christ. Therefore, all spirituality is dependent upon eccentration, getting rid of the ego. Not so much using the word I. And here I take you to another incident of Potts. There was a poor old woman in the Old Testament who had two sons who were about to be sold as creditors because she could not pay her debts. And Elisha the prophet came and asked her what she had. She said, all I have is this small pot of oil. Well, Elisha said, send out your sons to the neighborhood. And bring in all of the pots that you can find. Then Elisha said to the woman, now begin to pour the oil. Well, the woman began to pour the oil, and it didn't stop. And it filled one vessel, one pot, then another pot, and another. And finally she said to her son, hurry, another pot. And, and uh, the son says, there is no other pot. And it stopped. 
So God pours his grace into us according to our emptiness. And I will tell you later what helps to create that emptiness. This is one of the reasons why some people, for example, do not receive an increase of grace, why we're not saints. We have too much of the ego, the I in us. So then we get our grace, our treasure, from God, as exemplified by Cana. We must be empty. And then another condition is that sometimes God will put us through trials. And he will do that just in order to bring us closer to him. And we sometimes think we should never have trials. As a matter of fact, this is part of Christianity. Remember that Christianity began with a defeat. The victory came only at the end. The defeat began with the cross. Our blessed Lord, therefore, sends us trials. Now, here's an example of trial. I will read for you a passage from Jeremiah. And this passage is not just alone about the pot and the treasure, but it is rather about trials that come to different pots. I will first read Jeremiah, and then I will, I will um, explain it to you. And I'm always reading from the uh, New English Bible. In Jeremiah chapter 48, verse 11, all his life long, Moab has lain undisturbed like wine settled on its lees, not emptied from vessel to vessel. He has not gone into exile. Therefore, the taste of him is unaltered and the flavor stays unchanged. What is behind this prophecy of Jeremiah is the description of how wine was made in those days. Grape juice was poured into a vessel. The grape juice settled. The dregs or the lees went to the bottom. The winemaker would then pour the wine into another vessel or pot, leave the dregs in the first vessel. Then he would do it the third, fourth, and fifth time, always leaving the dregs behind. Now, God is speaking to Moab, the people of Moab. They were the enemies of the Jews. They would not allow the Israelites, for example, to cross through their land is that a signal for me to quit that bell? No? I never know. They wouldn't, for example, allow the Israelites to cross through their land. Now, God is saying, Moab, you people have never had any trial or tribulation. You've never gone into exile like the Jews. And because you've never gone into exile, 
Your wine is unfermented. It's stale. It's sour. Here the scripture indicates that we sometimes will be shifted and our positions will be changed. We may have a checkered career. We may have blessings for a time and then we'll have adversities. All this is to make the more perfect wine. God does not like us to settle down. Because when we do, our pot becomes full of dregs and leaves. And that brings me to another story about pots. Now suppose I tell you there were 87 examples in scripture. What would you do? Two hours and a half at least it would take. But it's not going to take that long. The next one is also from Jeremiah. And this is a very beautiful one. I love to read this passage. It is um, chapter 18, verse 1. God speaks to this great prophet, Jeremiah. These are the words that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down at once to the potter's house. And there I will tell you what I have to say. So I went down to the potter's house. And found him working at the wheel. Now and then a vessel he was making out of the clay would be spoiled in his hands. And then he would start again and mold it into another vessel to his liking. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Can I not deal with you, Israel, says the Lord, as the potter deals with clay? You are clay in my hands, like clay in his house of Israel. Now let me explain this. Jeremiah is told to go down to the potter's house. There he found a man at a wheel with clay at a table nearby. The potter has the intent of making a very fine vase. If it's expensive, it's a vase. If it's cheap, it's a vase. He has the intention of making, say, a Ming vase. And as he plies his finger over the wheel and the clay on it, it breaks and it falls to the ground. Does he leave the clay there? No. He picks it up and he said, well, if I can't make a vase, I shall make a vase. And so he makes it into an old pot. Now, God has the intention to make each and every one of us of ours. But we all do not turn out the way he wants us to be. 
and the way that we very often want to be. Does God reject us? No, he doesn't. He puts us again on the wheel and turns, and he makes us into a lesser vessel. But we are still his. Never despair, therefore, because there has been a failure. God does not let you go. The Father continues to work with you and to turn you into, even though it is a common vessel, one that can still contain the treasure of his grace. And we are very often, when tribulations and trial come, we are to see that we're clay in the hands of the potter, and God is molding us. On the last day, we'll be very grateful, too, that God did take his time in making us better. George Bernard Shaw said, It is too bad that youth was wasted on the young. No, I think it's a good thing that youth was wasted on the young. Because when we get older, we get a little wiser. And God has a better opportunity sometimes of working with his pots. Now we come to the last of the analogies of the pot. This is the story of the woman at the well. The time is high noon. The land is Samaria. Now, Samaria was the ham in a sandwich. The Holy Land was divided into two parts, Judea and Galilee. Judea was on the right side of the tracks. Galilee was on the wrong side of the tracks. When the Babylonians, six centuries before Christ, took over this land, they brought in some of their own people who intermarried with the Jews. And they produced a hybrid race called the Samaritans. Now, the Jews would never have anything to do with the Samaritans. As a matter of fact, they would not accept any money for the building of the temple from the Samaritans. Now, I can't give you a better idea than that of how much they must have hated the Samaritans. And the Samaritans, in their turn, when the Jews were in captivity, they would telegraph the dates of the feast by lighting fires on mountaintops. Samaritans would always light the fires two or three days in advance to confuse the Jews. The Samaritans would throw bones into the temple to desecrate it. So our blessed Lord now comes to this well at high noon, sits down tired, tired. And a woman comes to draw water. Now she should not have been there at noon. No woman in a hot country ever comes at high noon to draw water from a well. There was a reason for it. And our blessed Lord says to her, Will you give me to drink? 
Whenever our Lord wants a favor, he often asks for one. And she said, this well is deep, and you have no pot wherewith to draw. And how is it that you, a Jew, speak to me, a Samaritan? Our Lord said, if you knew who it was who asked you for a drink, you would ask him for the fountain of living water. Our Lord was here describing grace. He was saying, under the analogy of water, that I will give you a kind of an inner spring, a fountain of truth and love. But she couldn't understand that. And our blessed Lord saw that she could not. And he said to her, go tell your husband. She said, I have no husband. Our Lord said, thou answerest, well, thou hast no husband, for thou hast five. And he with whom thou livest now is not thy husband. Now, that was embarrassing. Now you know why she couldn't come in the morning at night. The women wouldn't let her come. She was an evil woman. She had to come alone at noon. Now, that was rather disturbing to the Samaritan woman for a Jew to tell her that. How did he know anyway? Now, what would you do if you were at that well and you were in that condition? I know what I would do. I would change the subject. <laughs> Who, what woman, for example, with, with six men wants to talk to a one like our blessed Lord about adultery? So she changed the subject, too. She said, let's talk about theology. Where should we worship? In Jerusalem, or do the Jews, or on the mountaintop, as we Samaritans do? And our Lord said, neither. And he explained about the true worship of the Father. Well, she came to understand him and to know him better. It's interesting the different titles that she gave him in the course of that conversation. First, she called him a Jew. Then she saw that he was a gentleman. She addressed him as sir. Then prophet, then Messiah, the expected one, the Christ. And when our Lord said to her, when she said, I, I know that Christ is coming, our Lord said, it is I who talks with you. Well, think of what a surprise that was. What does she do? She runs back to the Samaritan village. Incidentally, there are only about 150 Samaritans left in the world, pure Samaritans. She runs back to the Samaritan village. And the gospel says she leaves her pot behind. No more need of it. She had waters now. And then she tells the people, 
And there is some indication in some of the gospel accounts that maybe she told only the men she was going to get even with the women <laughs> because they wouldn't let her come out in morning or night. But can't you imagine this woman coming out again to the well with a lot of men flocking after her, all of her boyfriends? And, and they said to her, we believe now, but not because you told us, because we've seen with our own eyes. And the woman called our Lord for the first time in the hearing of the world, Savior. Jew, gentleman, prophet, Messiah, savior of the world. And applying the lesson now of pots, we have a treasure within us, God's presence, God's grace. It is perfected by trial, by adversities born in his name. But there will come a moment when We'll meet the Lord, as the woman did, and we'll leave the old pot behind. And it's put into the grave. But the treasure, the treasure goes to the Lord. And the spirit that goes to the Lord always retains affinity for that body. Because that old pot had something to do with the bearing of trials. It brought us to the communion rail. It united ourselves with the body and blood of Christ. And when, therefore, our spirit is glorified, there will come a day when the body itself will be glorified. You can't put, for example, you put an electric light into a, an alabaster vase and it will glow. We can see the innocence and divinity sometimes in children. Well, you put divinity into a human nature as it was, as was the case with our blessed Lord. His human nature must have glowed as it did at the transfiguration, which must have been a kind of a natural state of our Lord. And so, when we come to the general resurrection, our body is going to be completely transformed, not the same that we have now with all of its imperfections, as the seed is not that which becomes the rose. So our body will be in keeping with the grace that we have received. And my good friends, you've now heard a story, a sermon that you've never heard before on old pots. And may I recommend to you that you allow his fingers to work the clay. Then you'll not spoil his art, and then you'll not spoil your life. And someday you'll no longer be a pot. You will be a main vase. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. 
Well, my dear friends, I hope you enjoyed these two reflections that I chose for you today. And I know they have touched my heart. And uh, again, we invite you to uh, bring a friend next week and uh, to keep spreading the word that Bishop Sheen is back on Radio Maria. And so, uh, again, some of you may be wondering about that website, about the book I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, that Fulton Sheen anthology called War and Peace. And it is available through Sophia Institute Press. And their website is sophiainstitute.com. And uh, they have, uh, I think it's nine uh, Bishop Sheen books that are available for purchase. And so uh, there's the five anthologies or collections that I wrote and then four other titles. And so uh, when you visit the website, you can receive a 25 percent discount uh, when you order two books. And so uh, many people have been ordering this new book, War and Peace, an anthology, and also adding uh, Sheen's 1941 classic called A Declaration of Dependence. And of course, it is a beautiful, uh, again, reflection on the Declaration of Independence. And uh, again, we're getting uh, ready to celebrate the 4th of July festivities here in America. And so a very timely reading. And uh, again, Fulton Sheen reminds us that we need God, that we're dependent on God. And so uh, that beautiful little book is available also at Sophia Institute Press. And uh, their website is simply uh, sophiainstitute.com. And uh, use the promo code SHEEN25 when you're checking out, and you'll receive a 25% discount when you order two books or more uh, from Sophia. So that promo code is SHEEN25. And again, at sophiainstitute.com. And so, my dear friends, until next week, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. And may the Lord let His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.